some fun facts. Gospel songs, which I would associate a lot with the American South, didn't really get their start in the American South. Yeah, uh, it was totally my assumption. Did you assume this as well? I assume they had I assumed that they had their roots in like spiritual slave songs, which obviously slavery was around in the South much longer. Mm -hmm. So I assumed that was where it was from. Yeah, there are definitely definite influences from that that we'll get into. But gospel music actually owes some of its history to the Gales. with another episode of Him Partial where we talk all things church music. I'm Kyra Devereaux. And I'm Monet Funke. And today we will be taking a look into the origins and culture around gospel music. That's right. And as always, if you're watching on YouTube, go ahead and hit that like and subscribe button. It really helps us get the word out to others on the platform. And just another pro tip, since we're into those now, um, we do have a weekly newsletter that drops once a week to let you know when we have a new episode released. And you can sign up for that newsletter at himpartial.com. That's himpartial.com. And you can follow us on social media at himpartial. Now, I'm so excited for this episode. Yeah, this week's topic is a huge subject. In fact, we know from the start that this will be a two-parter. Just going to put it out there. It can't be contained in one episode. Now, the first half, half of this discussion, we'll be focusing on the history. And in the second part, we'll actually be taking a little bit more time to talk about um, how Protestants interact with this t sort of music, and what are some of the pros and cons of the gospel genre. So I don't think either of us comes from a church background where we would have interacted a lot with gospel music. No, we no? didn't. Like one of my churches, we didn't really interact a lot with music, full stop. So... <laughs> Gospel music probably wouldn't have been one of the approved kind of yeah. styles. Yeah. I mean, I did attend a church with my grandmother, like during summers and during weekends. Uh, and this was kind of like a, not a historically black church, a majority black church um, that would sing gospel music. But that was quite limited. That wasn't, it. that wasn't during my time as a Christian. Just so happened to be, my only real interaction with that with that genre in a real church setting. That's cool. So the genre itself is really hard to define uh, because it's shifted and changed over the years. But at the end of this two-parter, I believe we will be able to pull out some of the most consistent characteristics of the genre and their significance to the church. Um, there is a lot of disagreement as to the true origins of what we would call gospel music. So you'll have to forgive me from the start, um, as this is not going to be easy. <laughs> but today, we will be looking primarily at gospel music as it was formed within the American church, and primarily the black churches of America during the 20th century. So, Kara, I have a question for you. This is totally um, like a landmine, but how would you describe gospel music? Carefully? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think a lot of us, when we think of gospel music, we think of kind of like black choirs and the flowy robes, like 
sort of improvising and and getting really into it and yeah yeah a lot of emotion a lot of clapping a lot of, yeah yeah I mean it's kind of true but <laughs> but not actually we're, we're gonna get into some specifics um a lot of the songs I would associate with this particular genre might have been written before the term gospel music was coined for example we, all, we talk about this song so much, but we were talking about Amazing Grace, which was essentially co-opted and made popular by gospel singers many centuries after it was written. Um, I mean, it, it's something we discuss often in general that of the old hymns that we still use today, a lot of the tunes that we would recognize them by weren't written until the last century, really. So that's true for gospel music as well. However, that's not to say that there weren't many, many songs written specifically for this genre, which we will get into that later. That's cool. I think it's, it's interesting that even some of the hymn tunes that we use now, like Amazing Grace, although they're not gospel songs originally, they do work very well in that mm -hmm. style. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, some fun facts. Gospel songs, which I would associate a lot with the American South, didn't really get their start in the American South. Yeah, uh, it was totally my assumption. Did you assume this as well? I assume they had, I assumed that they had their roots in like spiritual slave songs, which obviously slavery was around in the South much longer. Mm -hmm. So, I assumed that was where it was from. Yeah. There are definitely definite influences from that that we'll get into. But gospel music actually owes some of its history to the Gales. Of course. All good <laughs> things. All good things. Well, not all good things. No. A lot of good things. Minus haggis. Um, are our fault. Yes, yes, yes. It's very true. So it looks like for English songs, at least, we will probably be giving fist bumps to the Gales quite often. <laughs> There's a lot of um, influence from the Gales into church music. So we're just a musical people. That's, that's it. what it is. That's yeah. it. That's it. So do you have any idea why they might be credited with some influence into gospel music? I want to say because one of Scotland's biggest imports is imports exports is actually people. So mm. I would guess it would be because um, so there were, do you know about the Highland Clearances? Mm -mm. So back in the day, um, the landowners decided that they didn't want tenant farmers. They were just going to have sheep instead because less people to pay um, more money from the meat and wool and stuff than these really rubbishy farms that weren't growing much. Mm. So they basically said to people, get out. <laughs> um, and the nice ones said, we will pay your passage to America. Mm. If you leave, um, wow. the nasty ones just burnt the houses down. <laughs> like, oh my goodness. So that contributed a lot to people going over to America. Going away. I assume they took their music with them. Absolutely, absolutely. And specifically, something that we're all experts in, it was their psalm singing that was a major, major influence in early gospel music. Uh, particularly the style of singing while well, there was a presenter who called a line to the congregation and the congregation would answer by singing that line in response. This proved a useful way to teach music to black slaves who we know were kept from reading and were largely illiterate. Um, additionally, since the style of singing was usually a cappella, 
psalm singing is thought to be the inspiration for the style for like Negro spirituals and work songs sung during the time of slavery in the United States. That makes a lot of sense. That's really cool. It does. I was like, oh, wow. I never even thought about that. So thanks, Scots. <laughs> um, so similar to Britain, actually, psalm singing was kind of the go-to for a lot of churches in America, um, especially the American South. And this is also heavily influenced by all of the dissenters that came from Britain. They fled to the Americas and they brought them their high views of scripture and their high views of singing scripture with them. Um, so there are a few key players who sort of got the ball rolling away from this heavy psalm singing or this tradition towards, um, you know, singing some alternative mm -hmm. music to psalms. One that we're going to talk about is Fanny Crosby. I like her. Yeah. <laughs> I, well, I've heard of her and I, I like her hymns. Yeah. I don't really know that much about her life. I'll tell you a teensy bit now. Um, First of all, I just want to say, before we get started, there's going to be a lot of honorary titles given to these folks, these kind of pioneers. So get get yourselves ready. <laughs> Wait, is, is Fanny Crosby the blind one? Yes. Okay, I do know about her. I like her a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, she was really a fascinating woman, really fascinating. She was born in 1825, and she was born blind, and she lived to be 94 like a crazy, crazy long life. And she was known for, and this is the first of our kind of titles. She was known as the queen of gospel songwriters. So I wouldn't actually associate her with gospel music. She's not the first person that comes to mind. So that's really interesting. Yeah. Well, the reason why is because she was writing all these hymns and hymns, you know, that weren't Psalms, you know, if you weren't singing Psalms or singing scripture, hymns were like this other thing. And we know from our Psalm only, um, conversation that we had, um, a few weeks, few, what is it, like a month ago now, uh, that there was a lot of controversy in the church, both, both in Britain and in the U S around singing anything that wasn't Psalms. So she was kind of the, the queen of gospel songwriters because she wrote more than 8,000 hymns. So she wrote a bunch of non-psalm songs. <laughs> she probably holds the record then of like the ones that we've discussed. We kind of mentioned Charles Wesley mm -hmm. in passing and he was clocking in about 6,000. Mm -hmm. So she's up there. Yep, she was. And her songs were heavily used during the evangelical crusades led by Iris Sankey, which I know a bunch of my friends will be like, what, what, Sankey hymns? Because they published a bunch of hymns as well. Um, and DL and DL Moody, and this was mainly around 1870 to 1898. So they went around traveling both the U S and the UK sharing the gospel and playing a bunch of Fanny Crosby hymns. <laughs> um, and some of her most popular songs are blessed assurance, pass me not Oh my savior. Jesus is tenderly calling you home. And one of my favorites to God be the glory. I absolutely love that song yeah. and we will cover it one day. I promise. <laughs> we have a lot, just so you guys know, I know we say this every episode. Oh, we'll talk about that later. We have a list. It's like it is as a long, long as list. my arm. <laughs> yeah. like, so long. It is a really long list. Um, so she was featured in many, many hymnals. I mentioned the Sankey hymnals, which that's not their technical name, but that's kind of how people refer to them. Um, 
and so she wrote so many songs that denominations felt uncomfortable having so many songs from the same writer. So she was rumored to have 200 pseudonyms. Like she wrote, P.S. She wasn't just a hymn writer. She wrote poems. She wrote all, like all kinds of things. Uh, but in terms of her relationship to gospel music, like this is a big deal that she was so popular. People wanted to have all of her songs in, but they couldn't be like Crosby, 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 like every song coming from her. So she's like, oh, I'll just put it under a new name this time. So people won't be prejudiced against it. <laughs> so do we know for sure how many she did or was it 8,000 that she signed her actual name to? I'm, I'm not sure. It's just attributed that she wrote okay. about 8,000. Whether that was under her pseudonyms or not, I think we could safely guess it was at least that many. Yeah, at least that many. If you have a chance, you should definitely go look her up. She's really fascinating. We won't be able to get into her. She's only the first of many people that were part of this kind of move away from singing psalm music and moving towards more gospel music. Um, so Fanny's music spread via the hymnals she was featured in and also being featured in many of the evangelistic crusades with D.L. Moody and then later after she had passed away, Billy Graham. And it definitely went a long way to circulate her songs um, to churches. And this, this was a big deal, I think, historically. Now, another major player in the gospel music genre was called, another title here, the father of gospel music. I love that he's not the king. Like, she's the queen. Yeah. And then he's just like, the father. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's true. So the father of gospel music, his name was Mr. Thomas A. Dorsey or Reverend Thomas A. Dorsey. Um, and he's actually the one who coined the term gospel as he was the founder and president of the National Convention of Gospel Choirs and Choruses. Yeah. Uh, funnily enough, his flu influence was also not from the South, though he was from Georgia. He was his musical influence was um, in Chicago. So Fanny, actually, she was born in New York and kind of was like a, a New England uh, resident. And then you've got Mr. Dorsey or um, Thomas A. Dorsey, who was born in the South, but really all of his musical influence was in Chicago. Um, and so he was a singer songwriter in the 1920s. Uh, he started the beginning of his career making quite a bit of money singing off-color blues songs. What's an off-color blues song? Off-color, as in adult-themed. Ah, <laughs> uh, right, okay. Yes. Fair enough. Yeah. I'll ask no more. <laughs> um, and... So his prosperity in life kind of took a dive. He lost a ton of money uh, during the Great Depression and experienced somewhat of a conversion and started to turn his talents towards Christian music. Um, what was unique about Dorsey is he kind of sophisticated the call and response technique inherited from the Scots and passed down through oral tradition of Negro spirituals and used his blues and jazz song writing skills to create a new thing. Um, now, a side note that's sort of important is that in the late 1920s, African-Americans became more concerned about literacy. Um, it was no longer enough to know the tune and the harmony. Now the black community was very concerned with being able to read and write music. Unlike us. <laughs> I can see why, though. Like, if a lot of their tunes were passed down orally, then they would want to be able to preserve them somehow. It was just seen as, like, the sign of sophistication and class. Um, 
And so Dorsey, having studied music formally in Chicago, he started his own company called Dorsey House of Music. And it's impressive that he set this company up during the Depression uh, when everyone, especially the black, black community, were under such severe economic hardships. And at his company, he published his own songs. And the way he would sell them is he would go to churches and ask them if he could have an opportunity to play. And he would essentially share copies of his sheet music afterwards. He would like sell them. It was just like this really organic door-to-door salesmanship. Part of me is like the guy's got guts and part of me is like, is that appropriate? (laughs) Hey, I mean, we still have, what do we have now? We have the Christian music licensing stuff and that's giving money to the artists as they- Yeah, but it's not turning up on a Sunday and going, hey, can I play a song? And then, oh, by the way, like, here's the music for it. What would have been that day's equivalent? How would you get your word out? No, it's true, actually, yeah. It's difficult. Yeah. Well, he had some success uh, doing this, but it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows. Uh, He received a lot of pushback when he went into churches, uh, as folks saw his music as worldly and secular, similar to some of the original hymn writers of the 16th and 17th centuries, his lyrics containing many personal pronouns that was scandalous. Uh, Not to mention jazz and blues music were not exactly the holiest of genres. And Thomas himself would have known that coming from that background professionally. So in the late 1930s, almost done talking about Thomas here, um, he experienced a really, really severe tragedy when his wife, while giving birth to his first son, passed away. And then his son... Um, Thomas A. Dorsey Jr. passed away just two days later. So it was like impact on impact on impact. It was heart-wrenching. And from this grief, he contemplated suicide. And that's when he penned his most famous hymn, Take My Hand, Precious Lord. So have you heard of this song before? I actually haven't, but you make me want to go listen to it now. (laughs) Yeah, it was it was later recorded, and this is how I know of it, by some really famous artists, including Aretha Franklin, Elvis Presley, and Al Green. So I'd never heard Mr. Dorsey himself sing it until I kind of looked up, looked him up for this for this episode. But um his singing voice was okay. He was a talented writer, talent like could compose and and write really, really beautiful um, songs, but his singing voice was okay. So, you know, these kind of uh, heavy hitters, Aretha Franklin, Elvis Presley, et cetera, they um, brought the showmanship that made those song, that song particularly popular. I just want to read some of the lyrics of this song because for those who have felt such heart-wrenching pain, um, like, like Mr. Dorsey had of losing a spouse and or a child, it might really hit home. So here's just one verse. When my way grows drear, precious Lord, linger near. When my life is almost gone, hear my cry, hear my call. Hold my hand, lest I fall. Take my hand, precious Lord, lead me home. That reminds me of um, a psalm. Hmm. Um, Psalm 88, because one of the things about that psalm is like it does just admit tragedy it's it doesn't 
Yeah, I'll read I'll read you a little bit. Mm. So verse, if that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I love when we read scripture. <laughs> um, so verse uh, 13 to 18 says, But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffered your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Yeah, it's got that same kind of tone of of heart-wrenching pain. And um, I think that's something, just, uh, just as an aside, that we see a lot of the early gospel music has a lot of that pain that we know a lot of black Americans were experiencing because of segregation, because of slavery, a lot of the tone of the earlier like um, spiritual songs um, were similar to this Psalm 88. And I think um, there's, there's a much, there's a wealth of, of experience and, 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 connection with God in those kind of, in those kind of songs. I think as well, there's quite strong feelings of longing in a lot of gospel music as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so thank you for reading that. So, so far we've had this, the queen of gospel songwriters, Fanny Crosby, and the father of gospel music, Mr. Thomas A. Dorsey. And now we're going to take a look at the queen of gospel, Full stop. <laughs> and her name was Mahalia Jackson. That is such a great name. I know. I love it. Apparently, she was born Mahala Mah- Mahala Jackson and then added the A later. I don't know why. I can't tell you why. But Mahalia was actually Dorsey's demonstrator, meaning whenever he went to a new church or a convention um, to showcase his songs, Mahalia Jackson would sing them. So she had an incredible voice. I've listened to several recordings of hers while I was researching, and she was a deeply passionate singer. Um, And Dorsey and Mahalia traveled all over the United States selling his sheet music, and she was effectively the face and the voice of his songs. That explains how he did so well off it. Because when you were saying he wasn't that good a a singer, I was kind of like, it'd be harder to sell your songs Mm -hmm. if you're not that great. (laughs) But yeah, that explains it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but it wasn't until after she her time with Dorsey, I think she spent like five years or something touring with him, uh, that she started to gain national acclaim. She was signed to Apollo Records and recorded a breakout hit, Move On Up A Little Higher, which was so popular when it was released that the stores couldn't keep the album stocked on the shelves. And she sold, I think in the end, eight million copies of this song. That's a lot, even by today's standards, even with like streaming and everything that we have, like that's a lot. Yeah. And she wasn't even the first person to record it. I'm positive that the writer of this hymn um, had another artist uh, record it maybe 10 or 15 years earlier, Mm -hmm. but Mahalia Jackson's the one that put it on the map. (laughs) So um, it was said of Mahalia Jackson that she would never sing secular music and you'll understand why that's important a little bit later. Even though many churches initially objected to this style of music, uh, the content, 
the content of the song for Mahalia was always about God. She said, I sing God's music because it makes me feel free. Jackson once said about her choice um, of gospel, saying that it gives me hope. With the blues, when you finish, you still have the blues. <laughs> That's funny. Sounds like a good girl. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She was deeply convicted about what what it meant to sing for God. Um, and it was people like Mahalia Jackson, also Marion Williams and Rosetta Thorpe, um, that showed that gospel music could be profitable and popular. So Mahalia's recording of Move, up, Move On Up a Little Higher alerted the major record companies uh, of the commercial appeal of gospel songs. So from there, you saw the rise in traveling ensembles in the late 50s and 60s. Um, and at that point, it was possible for people to make a living off of being gospel singers. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And I think it starts to shape a little bit of the American music scene for me in my head because it's it's a bit spotty and it starts to, I guess, kind of bring it a little bit more to the fore. So I want to start making some important connections here. Um, one of the sort of rock stars of gospel music, and I use that phrase in an intentional way, um, I mentioned her just a bit ago. Her name was Rosetta Tharp. Uh, now, this will be my last honorary title for the episode. <laughs> Rosetta was called the godmother of rock and roll. Oh, so I know that um, a lot of black music influenced rock and roll. Yes. There is the accusation that rock and roll basically stole mm. from with Elvis as well. Yeah. Yeah. I would say this is this is who they stole it from. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we're kind of moving away from gospel music a little bit here, but it's important because Rosetta was heavily influ influenced by blues and jazz music when she was a kid. But she developed this unique swing style of playing her guitar that was a definite precursor to rock and roll. Like when you hear it, you're like, yeah. I mean, she even had the leg kicked out and everything, just like Elvis. It is in or Elvis had his leg kicked out just like her. I don't know, chicken egg. Well, we know she was first. Um, but her mother was like an ordained mission worker or something in the Pentecostal, Pentecostal denomination, the Church of God in Christ. So she had conflicting desires. Rosetta had con conflicting desires her whole career between singing the gospel songs that her mother and her church loved and, and that she loved herself because she was in those same circles as like Mahalia Jackson. Um, so she was torn between the gospel music and her unique style of jazz and blues out, of the, out in the secular world of which she got a lot of acclaim for. for. So she was very popular in secular music. Um, but this often got her in trouble with the church that more than once essentially excommunicated her for her involvement in satanic music. That's harsh. <laughs> um, but I can see that happening. Yeah, I can believe it. Yeah, I mean, that is that is the... And it's a trend, right? As we talk about hymns, as we talk about these different genres of music, the church is like, no, 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 no. And it's that push away, that pushing back from what you're doing is not what's holy, you know? And that's where these discussions really take a lot of shape 
how are we actually engaging with the world and with God? And are those things overlapping and should they be overlapping? I think it's probably worth saying at this point that a lot of the good stuff has been rejected by the church at first. But just because the church rejects it doesn't mean it's not a bad thing, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. Like we do reject bad stuff too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, So, mm -hmm. you know, if there's something that your pastor is saying, no, that's not music you should be listening to. Mm -hmm. Don't use this as an excuse. Actually think about whether you should be listening to it. I just thought I better put that little caveat in. Oh no, absolutely. I think that's a great caveat. And um, it's something that we will talk about next week in I'm so detail. sorry for jumping the gun no 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 <laughs> no that's perfect that's a good teaser so essentially those are the key players okay. you know in the gospel music scene spanning from the mid 19th century to the mid 20th century of that history is there anything that you find particularly interesting or something that was shocking to you I think I was surprised that um, gospel music didn't really come from the South. Um, but I was pretty happy with its origins. Yeah. <laughs> I think I was surprised by that too. I mean, l- let's, let's not overlook the, um, the influence that, you know, uh, Negro spirituals and work songs had, but that was more like on the black church in general, but a lot of the, the key players that really shaped the sound and the and the trajectory of gospel music came from the north. I think as well, despite knowing how much people, church people hated jazz, mm. um, I'm still surprised by the extent of it. Like I knew they didn't like it and I knew um, it was things like, you know, these young ones that were going out to dances mm-hmm. and stuff. And it was like, oh, it's so worldly. Mm-hmm. But I didn't realize quite how like hard a line in the sand Mm. that was for people. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I think it's really interesting too, that there's clear overlap with how much the culture started to accept blues and jazz and eventually rock and roll and how popular this started to become within the church. So there's so much more to talk about. And I almost, you know, I was going back and forth if this should be one or two episodes, but I didn't want to cut the conversation too short. Even though we're spreading this over two episodes, it's worth noting that this is just like, what you call a whistle stop tour? This is not super in-depth. There's so much more to this genre. But I think that history is going to help us talk about this in a more informed space next episode. Um, where we hope to discuss some of the cultural and, I'm going to mess up this word, ecclesiological implications. Nope, that's right. That's it. Uh, Mainly, what are some of the distinctives of this genre and what are some of the contentions with it and how are we to look at the genre in light of church music? It is a super interesting conversation and it is an important one because it still affects us today. Um, I'm really thankful. Thank you for sharing that with us. We will, in our newsletter, share some of the music by some of the people that we've mentioned here so that you can get a feel for it and a flavor for it so that next week as we talk about it, you have some of these things in your mind. So if you want those extras, you need to sign up for our newsletter at himpartial.com. Mm-hmm. 
And um, yeah, make sure you tune in next week while we finish our discussion. Um, I hope this has been helpful to you. It's been helpful and interesting to me. Thank you very much, Monet. And until next time, I'm Cara Devereaux. And I'm Monet Funke. The Lord bless and keep you. Bye. Bye.